Welcome to Reframing Ministries with your host, Colleen Swindoll-Thompson. Here's Colleen. Hi, my name is Colleen Swindoll-Thompson, the director of Reframing Ministry, and I'm so delighted that you're here with us because we are going to offer today some direction regarding finding your passion and your heart through the pain that you're living with today. My guest knows so much about that, Mike Foster. Thank you for being with me today. It is great to be with you. A while ago, I was listening to a podcast by Davey Blackburn. Shout out to Davey. Hi, Davey. And uh, <laughs> hey, Davey. He, he interviewed you on this book, People of the Second Chance, which looks like this. And I will tell everyone you need to get this book if you ever feel like your life has ended and you're still living, right? Yes. Um, Mike, you wrote this a while ago. Tell us what prompted you to write this book. Yeah, well, it's it's been out for a couple of years now. And I, I just, uh, I think for me, the book is a, a, a way to stir hope in people's lives. I think a lot of us, when we go through difficult seasons, challenges, um, have rock bottom experiences in our stories, we look at them as a liability or something to be ashamed of or something that that we feel um, a lot of unsettledness about. And so really the book is a, is a way to take the reader on a journey to have those broken pieces of our lives begin to fit and understand that God uses that in a very beautiful way in our stories. And it's not something to be ashamed of, but it's something to actually uses our to our advantage and and to realize that the broken parts of our lives actually make us stronger and actually bring us closer to god's grace too but we have to walk through them which is so hard to find any kind of light at the end of the tunnel and you've done that with your history so as much as you're wanting to share i would like you to open up with what part of your story is had led you to start the people of the second chance yeah, so I always say that I, in terms of the work that I do, I'm both the physician and the patient. And, you know, I need my message as much as somebody else might need uh, the message of, of the book and the things that I am teaching on. And so for my for me, my story is, uh, I always tell people, like, literally in almost every decade of my life, I've had a rock bottom experience. And it actually started quite early in my, my journey and in my story. I was uh, sexually abused. Uh, at the age of 13 by a family friend, which just uh, anybody who's gone through any type of abuse understands how difficult that is and sort of the the confusion and the guilt of that and sort of the some of the sometimes the secrets of that. And so navigating that early on in my childhood was certainly a, a, a huge um, challenge and something that I've been even working through even into my adult life, just trying to heal those parts of my story. Another uh, story that I talk about in the book is when I was 19, I was involved in a very serious boating accident where I nearly killed another water skier. I, I was driving a boat and I turned the boat into what I thought was clear water. And uh, it wasn't clear. There was another skier who had fallen down into the water and I didn't see him in time. And I, I hit him and I, I ran over the top of him with this boat uh, they medevac him to the hospital. He barely survived, but he be, 
permanently disfigured. There'd be a court case and lawsuits and just, it was trauma, 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 trauma in the story. And I think what's interesting too about that particular chapter of um, the Valley experiences of my life, like that boating accident, a lot of people expect that story to sort of have a happy ending. Like maybe he and I had this moment where I could say, I'm sorry. And he forgave me and we, but none of that ever happened. And I think sometimes we have these things in our lives that just land like a big old thud. Mm -hmm. You're kind of like, God, what are you doing here? What does this mean? And I think those are the places that really grace needs to rush in because there's so much unresolved pieces of our stories that we're just going to have to trust in faith that God is moving in those places to create something good and beautiful out of it. Um, from what I know and have read through uh, my own history, that would be under um, ambiguous loss, so to speak, mm. which is so, or complicated loss, the kind of grief that doesn't have the magic fairy dust that spills over it and makes everything wonderful, which yes. at Disneyland, that works out great, but in real <laughs> life, not so much. So as you walked through that, how did you deal with that not having closure, but finding hope in the middle of no closure? Yeah, I think that's uh, you know, that that idea of closure is such a popular idea. Mm -hmm. I actually, in terms of my work and what I've experienced in my own life, there's so many things that we never have closure on. The thing that I actually believe in is this idea of um, instead of closure, we have openings, openings to greater levels of compassion, greater greater levels of understanding about the world and understanding about ourselves, our own strengths, our own weaknesses, and hopefully an opening to understanding God's love for us in those moments too. So for me, really the process was a very long process. And, and one of the things I talk about in the book is that that healing isn't sort of a destination. It's a it's an ongoing work that we're doing literally till the end of our lives. And so that to me is a much more hopeful, uh, realistic sort of process that I think we can grab hold of knowing that it isn't about going for closure and kind of like, Hey, I'm done with this or I'm over it. It's just not the way life works. Mm -hmm. um, I think we can get triggered easily. We can have different things happen. It can bring up very old emotions that are just sitting there that we never, we thought we were over. We thought they were closed and all of a sudden they're back uh, front and center. And so this sense of just, we do our work. We, we trust God. We lean into community um, we'd be very, we're very aware of that critical voice in our head that tries to shame us or judge us in, in terms of some of the things in our past. And we keep showing up for life. And that's, it's like, that's the, that's the invitation that God has for us each day. It's like, Hey, are you, are you going to show up today? Um, and there's something that I have for you if you're, if you're open to it. Right. I love in the beginning of the book, you asked two questions or you identified two questions that universally belong to all of us. And that being, and I have to get my glasses on here because I can't see it without <laughs> that being, who am I? Yeah. What am I here for? Yes. And as you walked through the accident and the assaults and the abuse and the betrayals that you had talked about that we'll get to eventually, um, Sometimes that can change over time, can't it? 
Yeah. How do we navigate those kind of waters? Yeah, well, those two questions, you know, who am I and what am I here for are very important questions that all of us at some level every day are asking ourselves. Um, and what happens is when we go through trauma, when we go through any type of painful experience, there's almost like this fog uh, that comes into our lives and this confusion that come, that sets in around those two questions. Mm. So we begin to believe that who am I? Well, I am my pain, or I am my worst moment, or I am my shame. And all that is not true. That's that's a lie that the enemy wants to tell us about our lives. Instead of saying, no, I am coming back to truth. I am God's beloved. I, am, I have dignity and value. Um, and then in terms of the plan, you know, what am I here for? Again, pain will say, like, you have no purpose. Your life is over. Um, stop hoping. Stop dreaming. Stop reaching for the things and the desires of your heart uh, instead of knowing that, no, hey, hold on. Um, if I can blow away that fog of pain and get some clarity, I realize that you know my weaknesses and my brokenness and those challenges that I've gone through are not something that have disqualified me for life. They've actually qualified me to actually be this really beautiful rescuer and heart healer and compassionate and empathetic person in the world. Um, it's interesting because the enemy does want us to believe it's all over if we've hit something hard. And yet, as you talk about in the book as well, or at least on the podcast, I remember hearing you say it's the seed that must fall and crack open and be crushed. And I actually watched a time-lapse camera of 24 days of a wheat seed being crushed. And it was fascinating because until it was split, there was nothing above ground, but it all happened underground. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in isolation, the enemy does an overhaul on us by whispering lies that you're not valuable. You're not good anymore. You're not worth it. You're not, you're not God's beloved, which mm -hmm. is an interesting word because beloved has been kind of a theme in my own life this last year. Mm -hmm. How do you get people, how do you bring people to the place of saying, I am God's beloved in the midst of my messy place? Yeah, that's, that's a great question and, and uh, not an easy process because I think a lot of us are loaded up with so much judgment and so much shame and so many lies that we actually believe about ourselves. And sometimes that starts really, really early on in our, our story. Like sometimes that is flowing from our family of origin. Maybe we had parents who weren't supportive. Maybe it happened bullying at school. And so we're just, you know, we live in a social media uh, society where the idea of being criticized, anybody can say anything they want about our appearance, about mm. what we do, who our friends are. Like, we're just constantly being criticized and, and judged and labeled. And so for me, it's actually, it's not something where you just flip the switch. It really is about making multiple decisions and moving our our heart and our soul and our mind and our thoughts towards health. And I think that really the beginning spot is anchoring ourselves in God's love and his radical acceptance of us. I think that um, all the research, big, a big fan of Brene Brown, mm -hmm. uh, all, but all of her research points to this power of acceptance, this power of when you feel unacceptable, there's nothing more powerful than a human being accepting you or God accepting you just as you are. 
And so helping people orient their lives around that and God's love is certainly a, the beginning step. The other thing is we, and this is more of a kind of a coaching counseling thing, we actually have to challenge our beliefs that we've and conclusions that we've come to about ourselves. So we've allowed maybe somebody who didn't have our best interests at heart to label us and to define us and say who we are versus really a, a much more positive, truthful voice define who we are. And so maybe the conclusions that you've come to about your story, about your identity, about your purpose, about your future need to be challenged and saying like, why am I believing this to be true about my life? And where did I get that message? Check the source, right? Check the source. Exactly. In fact, I loved what you talked about near the end of the book, which I I titled in my notes, Reframing Our Souls, which mm. is changing the perspective that we have on them. And you list in your book, looking at addiction, which is the power to surrender. We're mm -hmm. focused to come to the end of ourselves instead of refusing the addicted one. It's look at them as a hero as they start to surrender the desire for control because we don't have that or doubt, which I've struggled with so much along my own journey, which is the power of faith. Doubt causes us to examine our faith and an yes. unexamined faith is really not a deep faith. Um, the power of accept of emptiness leads to self-care loss the power of appreciation desperation the power of weakness i mean so many of these messages loneliness the power of engagement confusion the power of creativity i just heard the other day a research a 75 longitudinal year study on what brings happiness to people and they said it's nothing to do with money it's nothing to do with looks. It's engagement. And the mm -hmm. greatest um, barrier to that is loneliness. How yes. can we empower the church to say, the addicted, the doubter, the abused, come in because you're in the place of incredible transformation? Yeah. Well, one of the stories I share in the book is a story of uh, a kid named Chris who is in elementary school and he saw a need on his playground where just some kids who didn't have friends to play with and they were lonely. And so he went to his principal and he asked his principal if we could put out a bench in the middle of the playground where if you needed a friend or if you needed somebody to talk to, you could go sit on the, the bench and then the other students or teachers would know if they ever saw anybody sitting on that bench that they would go sit next to him and, and talk to him. And, uh, and actually what Chris was, uh, noticing it was actually a pretty big social phenomenon on recess playgrounds, right? With kids admitting 70, 80% of them admitting to feeling lonely at some time during, during playground, uh, during recess. And so uh, the, I, what I love about this story is that um, Chris saw this need and the simple need of, of loneliness out there had this really simple solution like, Hey, just, Let's put out a bench, and when they called, they called it the friendship bench, which I just love that that name. Um, the idea took off; it was a huge success. Uh, I think over two thousand uh, schools now have a friendship bench on them, and it's just this this sense of I I think about it in terms of the church. Like, wouldn't that be a beautiful picture that people didn't think of the church as a place of judgment or even just a, a place where 
you know, all the people who figured out their life, they go to church. But really, it's just a place for us to sit on a friendship bench together and be less alone and be more connected and to have have friends and people where we could share our stories. And to me, that's my hope and my dream for the, the local church and the Bride of Christ is just to, to be this hospital for people, to be this place where uh, we don't have to feel afraid anymore. We don't have to be ashamed of our past that we can come and be with fellow people. Because one of the things I, I doesn't say this in the story, but one of the things I believe about Chris and his idea for the friendship bench wasn't just that he saw people who were lonely on his playground, but I'll bet you there were some days where Chris himself had felt lonely on the playground and wished that he had some place to go. And so it's out of our pain, it's out of our brokenness, it's out of our own loneliness that I think God wants to birth something really beautiful and and give us new creativity and new ways to love people well. Okay, I want that friendship bench in every church. I agree. <laughs> I'm going to go to my little shops that I, my antique shops, take all the old benches and put friendship benches on them. But you yeah. also put in in your notes that in the church, um, there are reasons that, that people would not sit at that bench because it's risky. Like you yeah. said, the traditional church, ha- we all have lists. The traditional church, no sandals allowed. Um, shower and deodorant required. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. You must tithe, read the Bible, appear to have no sin. I think one of the worst mornings of our entire week is Sunday morning because we're yelling at each other trying to get out of the house. And yes, yet we show up too. looking so nice. And I want to say, does does anybody else have a struggle here? How can the church lower the guard of looking perfect? Mm. Yeah, such a great question. And I think for me, um, you know, I speak at a lot of leadership conferences and work with a lot of pastors. And to me, it starts from the the platform. It begins with leadership. And what we project in terms of our own stories and our own lives and our own brokenness, I think I think we need leadership that that looks a little bit more like real life. Um, and pastors who tell stories that look a little bit more like real life. And it's okay to have things unresolved. It's okay for things not to have the, as you mentioned, the fairy dust Disneyland ending. Um, And to begin to tell stories like that from our own, um, you know, as a pastor, as a minister teaching, I think that's really, really important because um, in a sense, we're only gonna go as far as the leader of the congregation is going to go in terms of our own openness, our own appearance, like what's okay, what's not okay. And pick people pick up cues, whether you're stating them, you know, very specifically or sort of subconsciously, people know, you know, how broken can I be in this congregation? How, or how perfect do I have to be in this congregation? And so I think it starts with leadership. And I think it does start with all of us just being a little bit more honest. And it's okay if, you know, it's a struggle on Sunday morning and we're yelling at our kids to get in the car. And, you know, we, that's because all of us are facing that. So I I think just that moment of just being, you know, start with the leadership, what we talk about on the platform, but then also just begin to share our stories. That's why I believe so strongly in community and groups and, and people being together because we actually realize that, Oh, 
you know, Colleen's not that perfect, all put together person that I see at church. She's actually a normal human being with a real story and with strengths and weaknesses and everything in between, right? And that's really the yes, that that's the story totally that inspires right. us. That's the that's the story that we can all relate to. Why are we afraid to tell those kind of stories, Mike? Well, I think it's just it goes back to this idea of. Every single one of us want, want to be loved and accepted. I think that's just at the heart of how God created us, to be welcome, to belong, to, to be in community. And I think we've adopted through all kinds of different cues and different learnings through our stories that if we, aren't, if we don't have our act together or if we don't you know, look a certain way or if we don't have our kids act a certain way, that, that we would be rejected. That we, that we would be pushed out. And so we've learned the game. And that's the unfortunate part of this is that we're all tr playing this game or we're trying to be people that we're not. And that sort of life is very exhausting. It's, it's obviously not God's intention. And, sort of, and that leads us into sort of different um, unhealthy escapism. You know, we, when, once we try to, we work so hard to be perfect. We work you know, exhaustively to try to put the best foot forward. And then we realize that there's a limit to that, or we can only sustain that for so long. That's when we life starts to begin to break down and we have these unhealthy escapes. We begin to lie. We begin to sort of become people God never intended us to be. You know, there's the, there's so much truth in presenting the false self versus the real self. And mm -hmm. I came across a writing. In fact, there are several books that I love, which is Richard Rohr. I share, a, we share our mutual respect for so Absolutely. much of his work and Brene Brown. And there was also a writing that I found, um, and it talked about death to the false self, because at the beginning of the book, you do talk about deaths and how we usually are cracked open through these deaths to the ideals of what we thought life would be. But the writer said sooner or later, if you are on any classic spiritual schedule, some event, person, idea, or relationship will enter your life that you simply cannot deal with using your present skill set, your acquired knowledge, or your strong willpower, which is really hard for someone like me who has a very strong willpower. The Lord's, you know, I mean, he's just dumped all kinds of things on me to go, okay, I give. <laughs> <laughs> the writer went on to say, spiritually speaking, you will be. You must be led to the edge of your own private resources. And at some point, you must lose at something. This is the only way that life, fate, God, grace, and mystery can get you to change. Let go of your egocentric preoccupations and go on a larger journey. Frankly, none of us will do this on our own. We will be forced to. Any attempt to engineer or plan your own enlightenment is doomed to failure because it is still ego-driven. Failure and humiliation force you to look where you are never, where you would never otherwise look. We must be out of the driver's seat for a while, or we'll never give up real control to the guide. Okay, I love that in theory, but when I'm pushed out of the driver's seat, which realistically is the truth of our entire lives, we are not in the driver's seat. Getting to that acceptance is tough. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh like you know, understand what I'm saying. Yeah. How do we encourage others to be okay with 
getting booted out of the driver's seat, in fact, accepting I'm not the driver. Hmm. Well, that is, again, one of the great gifts of pain and the challenges that we face is that we realize we, we eventually come to the acknowledgement that we can't do the driving hmm. and that we never were the driver. Um, you know, Richard Rohr talks about kind of the three phases. There's order, disorder, and reorder. And, you know, that, that order thing is really just about us controlling it. Right. And we, we actually are good at that. We can do it for a while and we can, we can hold on and try to drive the car as long as we, we can, but it does have its limitations. And then we have disorder and, you know, life begins to break down and life begins to crack open. And, and really it's in that place of God reordering those pieces and saying, Hey, listen, you were never meant to drive. That's not, that's not the life that I want for you. It's not the, the joy that I'm inviting you into because we also, we also know about when we are behind the wheel, that actually means we have all the stress, all the anxiety, all the frustrations, you know, all that, that, that fear that we live with. And so it's like, um, I always invite people just to think of walking through life with open hands and just a posture of um, flu fluidity and openness and acceptance. Because as soon as you're rigid and trying to control and trying to be in charge and life, life doesn't play fair. We, we know this and it is going to bump you in a way and hit you in a way where it is going to create a lot of disorder. And not to be afraid of the disorder, knowing that this is part of the process. It's it's the refining of the gold through fire, right? It's the creating of the diamonds through pressure. I mean, this is part of the process. So don't we don't have to fight the process. We just invite the process and, and trust that God is good, that we are loved, that there's something on the other side of the challenge waiting for us that is beautiful. Now, sometimes there's a lot of pain in that because as you referred to in the book or it was the podcast, I'm not sure which one, but the betrayal that can happen because if we have established relationships based on a set of dynamics that we're in control, then when everything is a mess, a lot of times people walk out of our lives. I've experienced oh. that and there is such a cutting pain in the soul when those we've trusted choose to say, that's too much of a mess for me. So speak to those who are alone and going, I thought I could get help and what do I do? Yeah, it, it's, it's one of the, again, one of the things that happens when we experience pain in our lives is that we actually begin to discover who our true friends are. Mm -hmm. And, um, and again, we, you can look at this both ways as either something that, that is unfair and horrible and, and, and not right, or we look at it as a way of like, okay, I'm now pruning friends that were never my friends, and I'm actually discovering the real people that are with me. And I think typically what happens, I know I've experienced this in my own life, is that what I thought was a very wide circle of friends and lots of people who are committed to me, when I've gone through the challenges, I've realized that it's actually just a very few that know me best or most committed to me who are going to see me through the long run. And I'll tell you what, what happens with those friendships. Those friendships become richer and deeper and more connected. 
And those other ones just sort of drift away as honestly, Colleen, they should. Um, we should not have that invest. We should not be investing our time and our hearts and our emotions into those relationships. So they're not, they're not, um, what they seem to be. And we, we, through the pain and through the loss, we've actually discovered one, two, maybe three people that are brothers and sisters, the ones that are just, and it's not, it's okay to have acquaintances. It's okay to have lots of people that are, um, around us or a part of us in some different way, but those true friends and those close friends are the ones that when everybody's walking out, they're walking in. And those people are angels in my mind. Those are the those are the people that I'm going to do the rest of my life with. Because they can sit in the mess with us. Yes. Now, um, a lot of times, my experience with raising a child with disabilities, my experience of having gone through domestic violence in my history, experience with a blended family, with health issues, there's a lot of loneliness in that mm -hmm. because those are a lot of messy places. Yeah. Um, what what do you say to the person sitting there? Because waiting is 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 like pregnancy. There is so much going on that God is orchestrating that we don't see the baby yet, mm -hmm. and yet a new birth is coming. How do you encourage someone? Not using crazy dumb statements that mean nothing. God won't give you more that you can handle. Well, really, then he should have not needed to come. Yes. <laughs> That's one of my big ones, obviously. Uh, yeah. What is it like to be present with someone who's in their mess? Yeah. So one of the things, so I teach a workshop, two-day workshop out here in San Diego called Rescue Academy. And I, I train leaders and anybody who's on the sort of front lines of helping people in grief and addiction and loneliness, whatever whatever it might be, I teach them this, this process that I've been using for the past 15 years to help just be a good heart handler in these situations. And I think you nailed it, Colleen, just the idea of presentness and practicing presentness. I think so often we think we have to come with advice or answers or the cliche stuff, you know, and, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. literally I teach people to, um, uh, really the, the greatest gift you can give somebody is to be present. And presentness to me is sort of these three things. It's I see you, I hear you, and your words are important. Your life is important. You, you met whatever you're experiencing, your emotions are important. And validating that and giving dignity to people in their pain is so incredibly important. And I think one of the reasons why people walk out when people are going through diff difficult challenges in their life is because they feel like they have to come with an answer. They have to have a solution. Or maybe that they feel like they have to sign up for, okay, now I gotta be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I gotta answer the phone at three o'clock in the morning. It's like, no, you know, realize the the beauty of just inviting a hurting friend to go for a, a, a 30 minute walk around the neighborhood. Uh, just the kindness of a, of a checking in with somebody who's having a tough week um, through text or a quick phone call. Just to know, like, those things are powerful um, inputs into somebody who is feeling lonely or is feeling hopeless or is feeling, a, you know, the sense of like life is just um, overwhelming to them. And so these small touches, I think I, I encourage people that you may not have all the answers, but you get to play a part in bringing 
small little rays of light into people's darkness and don't underestimate the power of presence don't underestimate the power of a kind word and just sitting and listening with somebody um, those are sometimes the greatest gifts we give to each other i love what you talk about in your book too about touch um, my son actually has massage therapy because there's muscle memory just like we can we grow our muscles, but then they just go away so very fast if we don't continue to exercise them. Yes. There's also muscle memory when it comes to our emotions and stress. I mean, look at the tight necks that we all walk around with often. Mm -hmm. So I did a little bit of research on that because I'm a research nut. And I found through this one site about the power of touch through the Touch Research Institute, which probably mm -hmm. you could expand on this even more than I can. So. I'll let you in just a minute, but I did find touch without words has the power to diminish pain, increase the autoimmune problems that we face, enhances our immune system, affects pulmonary and cardiac issues. It is a natural killer to the HIV and cancer cells. Um, enhanced alertness for others. In fact, EEG patterns of alertness and better performance on math skills shows up just by the touch of someone. I'm not talk talking about irreverent touch or wrong touch, but mm -hmm. the touch of a hand. Um, my son with his Tourette's, just the rubbing of the back of his neck calms him. How can yes. we do that wisely with one another? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And it's a, such an important topic that there's a lot of fear, a lot of misinformation about in terms of uh, touch and health, healthy touch. And I think that's a very important word, healthy touch, because there is inappropriate touch. There is touch that is unwelcomed. In fact, sometimes in my, my work, um, I won't even necessarily touch somebody, but my hand will be close, like I'll on their back or mm -hmm. it'll be close enough to where there's actually enter the body's energy is actually able to transfer. So even sometimes not even completely touching somebody um, is part of the work that of, of touching and healing. I think our body is such an incredible organism. And I always, one of the things I teach is that the body is often seen as the middle child where we're very interested in the heart or very interested in the soul or the mind, but we forget about the body, how it plays such an important part in healing in terms of trauma, um, our memories, uh, trauma is, is held within the body. So doing any type of body work, you mentioned your son, the massage therapy, that is so critical. And for us in general as people to get more in touch with our bodies and how we hold stress, mm -hmm. how we hold anxiety, how we hold the trauma, um, you know, just breathing exercises is an incredible uh, thing. You know, breath prayer. I teach people how to do breath prayer because it's connecting God's truth to our body and our breathing. I mean, think about this. When we go through something shocking or we see something shocking, what do we do? We like we literally reach for our heart or our mm -hmm. chest, right? This is kind of the, our, the natural motion. And it's literally ourselves comforting ourselves mm -hmm. through that. We're through that touch. We're trying to comfort ourselves through that painful experience or that shocking moment. And so the body, like studying it, understanding it, how it plays a role in our freedom, in our healing. And also as a, as a, 
rescuer, as a, someone who wants to help others, understanding the power of touch in people's lives and, and seeing how that actually releases uh, so much stress and anxiety in, in our lives. Well, there's a reason that foot massages are so valuable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <In> fact, <laughs> I agree. I mean, if there, if you want to have a, a very healthy touch, let's just start with what Christ did by washing each other's feet. Yes. I mean, that's so, so help, healthy and life-giving. When my son's disabilities were so painful, the only time he wouldn't cry was when I rubbed his feet because it attaches to so many other parts of the body and the hands as well. So there are very safe ways to, to be connected through touch that don't have to go anywhere beyond that. Um, Yes. Even just this idea of movement, like if you, they, they found there's a lot of studies around depression. If you're struggling with depression, Mm -hmm. one of the best things that you could do is go for a 10 to 15 minute walk like to lace up your shoes and go for a walk because that engages the body and releases endorphins. And, and so how the body plays, it's such a critical role in terms of our healing that honestly, Colleen, we just don't talk about enough Mm -hmm. Uh, in churches. We don't talk enough about in terms of how it, how it plays a role in, in our lives and in helping others. Hmm. Maybe that's why the Lord walked everywhere and there weren't automobiles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I um, Another part of, of the book talks about churches, and I did a little study on why people have, have stopped going to church because that tends to be kind of a, a trending topic these days. I read the other day that four to 7,000 churches close annually. So I thought, okay, let's figure out why. And I looked up, why do people not go to church? And I thought, as I read the list, number one, across the board was the fear of being judged. Another was refuse to engage with my real problems. People don't want to go there, which typically says to me, well, you're not engaged with your own self. So that makes you too nervous to enter into my own problems. Um, people are rigid or unwilling to change, or they have a list of rules that I'm supposed to keep that if I don't know them, I'm going to make a mistake and then be left alone. Um, everyone is fake was another one. People are exclusive. They only want my money. Um, leaders are hypocritical. There's no room for doubt or questions about my faith. Speak to those issues because I mean, there's transformation that can happen, but it often doesn't happen under the steeple. It'll happen at the friendship bench, or it it will happen in the hospital room. Mm -hmm. How can we open the door to this conversation? Yeah, you know, what you those those reasons and those those findings from that study are. I I I think they are absolutely one thousand percent true, and I think that's. That's the problem that the church is facing right now is that it's moving to this place of irrelevancy, especially around people's pain and hurt Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, I I think we've seen this rise in secular society of actually offering a a safer place for people to heal in many ways. I mean, whether it's the, the counselor or therapist office or, you know, the Oprah stuff or the Tony Robbins, like there's so many people we have issues, we have pain, 
and we're going to find communities and we're going to find places that are willing to talk honestly about that. And if the church continues to sort of pretend that everything's okay, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, life's always good. And, you know, it's just sort of, we, our voice just moves to a, a place of complete irrelevancy. And so again, this is why I'm, I'm, waving this banner and writing books and training leaders because I'm saying this is the pathway to a healthy and vibrant church um, and to ignore people's pain or to ignore your own pain and not talk about it or to sort of have this falsehood or, or fakery happening in our communities. You know, people just aren't going to put up with that. They're going to go elsewhere. Well, because we want to have help. Yes. And we want to have hope. I mean, it's so interesting that my son, who has so many labels, so to speak, or diagnoses, has more intuition than I think anyone else that I know. And uh -huh. he won't even need to see my face. He'll just hear a tone and go, can I make you coffee, mom? Yes. <laughs> I'm like, if only coffee would do it. Even Starbucks, which I love, is not going to heal what my, is breaking in my heart right now. But yes, we have to we have to welcome this. In fact, you say in your book, and I quoted you on labels, if you think about it, the formula works pretty well. I set the standard, I find those who don't meet the standard, and I win, which is kind of the competitive thing that happens at church when we yes. label others. Philosopher Alan Watts put it this way, religions are divisive and quarrelsome. They are a form of one-upmanship upon of one-upmanship because they depend upon separating the saved from the damned, the true believer from the heretic, the in-group from the out-group. I mean, could the list go on and on? I know it can. Um, and then you said, I love this, how we judge the single mom at Walmart with her out-of-control kids. I've been that mom, by the way, and I've heard so many things said. I'm like, if you want to exchange lives, by all means, I invite you yes. in my house. That's right. That's or right. the McDonald's employee who rides the bus and needs free health care. Or the homeless, the jobless, the food stamper, the girl who sleeps around, the man who still lives with their moms, the gay people, addicts in rehab for the fourth time. Judgment ensures we pick the most marginalized people, least able to fight back. Clearly my being better than you makes me feel better in the moment. Mike, I'm so sick of that, to be quite honest. <laughs> that me too. I, I can't stand it. I mean, I love it when my daughter reaches in her wallet and pulls out a dollar and gives it to the person on the street and doesn't say, how are they going to spend it? Mm. You know, that's not of our, that's not our business. Let no. God do that work. Okay. How can we promote this in our churches? Yeah. Well, it, I have me, a little emotion so, about this. I know. <laughs> no, yeah, no. And I appreciate that. And I feel, I feel that. And I, I just so, connect into it myself because it is the thing that breaks my heart and it breaks your heart when we mm -hmm. see um, these systems or these beliefs that are attacking uh, the most marginalized in our community and the people who don't need our judgment but actually need our love or our help. Um, it does it does make me angry. It makes you angry because it, it's just so unchristlike. It is so opposite of what um, you know, God's calling us uh, how to live and how to show up in the world. And so to me, so much of that, 
the person that judges a single mom in Walmart with the out of control kids, it says more about their heart and their life than anything about that single mom. And so I guess first I say, if you have ever, any, anybody who's watching this, anybody's listening, if you've ever felt judged, it's not about you. Mm. It's about them. And, it, and if you feel like you have a judgmental heart and you feel like you're actually pretty good at pointing out other people's flaws and other people's problems and noticing, you know, the, the, um, the people at church who aren't, you know, kind of falling in line, like if you feel that way, that is a great opportunity. That is a perfect sign to start looking at what's going on in your own heart. And I, I get, I gotta be honest, the people that are great at judging others, at shaming others, are carrying their own deep shame in their own hearts. And it is just a, it's just a, this vicious cycle of, I feel unworthy, so I want you to feel unworthy. Mm -hmm. I feel unloved, so I'm gonna make you feel unloved. I feel shame, so I'm gonna shame you. I mean, that's the vicious cycle that's happening here. So when someone has that kind of shame and has internalized it and it's become kind of the definition of who they are, you mentioned earlier, we, we don't have to be defined by our story, the victim, the abused, the mother of the disabled, the, you know, whatever it is, the cancer survivor. Let's first start with, I am the beloved of God mm-hmm. who has allowed what I may not ever understand and the question isn't why, because God is not, we, we are not entitled to have that answer, but yet to surrender to that passage. I mean, that's loaded with work for mm. most of us. Walk yes. us through some of those steps. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, the, again, this comes back to the identity, the, the identity question and what you believe about yourself is so incredibly important. In fact, in fact, if you have a broken identity, you have a broken life. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of being the beloved, being just lavishly loved by God, to, to sense that within you there is worthiness and dignity and to know that God literally knit you together in your mother's womb, that no matter what your situation looks like, that you are always welcomed at, at God's sake. Like, to me, like those are the things that I want to wake up in the morning and just get that on me. Like if I was yeah. putting on a coat or putting on, you know, a wardrobe, it is the wardrobe of worthiness, right? It's the wardrobe of God's love because that to me, and I've experienced this in my own life. is like, I can wake up in the morning. I can feel inferior. I can feel afraid. I can feel insecure. And then my, the rest of my day is going to reflect that. Mm-hmm my actions, my relationships, my choices. But if I wake up in the morning knowing I'm God's beloved and love is the anchor of everything that I do and I feel that, and yeah, I have to work out that. I have to quiet that little critical voice in my head that wants to remind me of certain things that I'm not good at or it's my past or whatever. Like if I go, nope, I'm God's my, God's beloved. I put that on. Life just works. And, um, there's a confidence that comes with that. There's an authority that comes with that. There's a compassion and empathy towards others that comes with that. I don't feel like I have to play the one-upmanship game. Like if you know you're loved, you don't have to prove anything, right? You don't have to like say, I'm bet I'm already in. <laughs> I'm like, I can't get any more love because I'm I'm just completely loved. 
as I am. And so it's just all those systems that tend to destroy churches, destroy societies, destroy families, like anchoring and knowing that we are loved people to me seems to be almost the silver bullet. Now it does require work. It, it, it requires intentionality. It means us waking up. It does noticing our body when we're starting to feel stressed or insecure and saying, okay, what's going on here? Why, why am I feeling this way about this person or this meeting or this conversation or this comment online that this person made and just noticing those things that are going on inside of us and, and then welcoming love back in, welcoming God's truth back into our life. It's a process, but it's one that, that really is just about intentionality and, and the smaller steps of saying, I'm going to make the decisions, choices, uh, choose relationships that move me towards me being truly who I am, God's beloved. You know, as you were talking, Mike, I started tearing up because truly an hour and a half ago, I was sitting with my son who I said, do you feel, John, that you're loved? And of course, he looks, he's my son with disabilities. He looks for my reaction to see, well, what am I supposed to say? And I said, don't, don't think about what I think. Do you feel that? He goes, I don't know. And I said, well, let's sit down right now and pray. Because you are. And I think anyone watching this, it doesn't matter the ability or whatever you have or don't have on this earth. It's the soul, which you, you mentioned has more gold mineral in it in our hearts than any other organ of our body. Mm-hmm. When we let that gold spill out, it looks like these tears. <laughs> yeah. And yet it is a treasure and a gift mm-hmm. to let someone else say, I don't know if I know that, but I need help figuring that out. Yeah. Can't we do that as a church together? Mm. Well, I think John John's question is one that I think so many of us struggle with, right? We just, we're just not sure. And for us to be, um, show up in people's lives as a voice of truth saying, you are loved, you are loved, you are loved. And letting that be our only message to me, I, I think about my own life. That's all I want to remind people of these days. Right. That's all I want to communicate these days, because honestly, it's what they need to hear more than anything. They don't need to be reminded of their inadequacies or what they did wrong. They, it's like it, those things are obvious. They blare what, at us anyways. <laughs> that's right. They're just like what I need to be reminded of by my friends and the people who care about me is that I'm, I'm loved, loved by them and loved by God. Um, because I think so many, just like John, you know, in your conversation with him, I'm not sure. And I need, and I want to be sure. I want to know. And so like as, as his mom, you know, what a beautiful thing just to kind of step in there and say, let me, let me, let's begin to talk about that. And let me remind you who you are and, and that love is real and that you are loved more than you could ever know. There's a desire um, in me to have him know that. And it's interesting that sometimes animals who can't even communicate, my daughter's studying to be a veterinarian, they they can share love so much mm. easier without words than mm-hmm. human beings. Yes. And I, 
I, I think that's why there's so much healing therapy with working with animals mm. because they take us as we are. They're not like, oh, excuse me, you're not good enough. You can't ride on my back. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> right. Hop on. Let's go for a walk. Yeah. Um, what have been some of the hardest things for you to allow to be loved? Mm. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's I think, you know, for me, um, Certainly, certainly some of those stories I mentioned earlier about both the abuse and then the um, boating accident, you know, just so much confusion around that for many, many years of just trying to work through that and going, you know, it wasn't your fault. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times um, we block love because we think it's our fault that these things happened. Um, and so to me, uh, really working through that that process of just saying letting myself off the hook because um, again when we hold others to a very high standard often but really we hold ourselves to a standard that is just impossible sometimes and so to me inviting that that love into that place of our greatest pain and our greatest mistakes and our greatest fears like that that to me is um, an exciting project and in a place of great discovery about who we truly are. And so to me, it's been a combination of, you know, friendship, community, therapy, 12 step. Um, like it's, it's studying or reading. It is, um, a never ending process of, uh, God resurrecting those painful dead things in my life and giving them new meaning and new purpose so that requires safety and there Mm -hmm. are i'm sure with cloud and townsend and all the work that they've done safe people and boundaries and and artiburn with toxic faith how can what do we need to look for in order to to not re-damage ourselves but to find safe people Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I I think first off, any friendship or any person who's trying to fix us is an unsafe person. And so if you are, if you sense that you're becoming somebody's project, Mm. that's a problem. If they show up with a toolbox, go ahead next door. (laughs) Yeah. I always say, say, you know, fixing is great for animals and pets, but not people. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So, you know, the, and I think that's just a tail sign. Like, I don't. I don't want to be um, opening my story, opening my life to people who have an agenda, who have sort of this Messiah complex. I want people who actually are willing to have a me too moment with me, Mm. who are actually willing to share their own brokenness and like um, say like, I don't know what you're going through, but I know what it's like to feel lonely. I know what it's like to feel on rock bottom. And it's not sort of we want people to all of a sudden co-opt our story or co-opt our pain and start right. talking about them themselves the whole time. But people who are um, embracing their own brokenness, to me, are safe people. I, I have a friend who uh, hires worship leaders and helps uh, put worship leaders in churches. And he goes, never hire a worship leader who hasn't been broken. Because if you hire a worship leader who hasn't been broken, you're just hiring a song leader, not a worship leader. And I think to me, it's like, I don't want a friend, um, a close friend or somebody, a safe person to come into my life 
who hasn't been broken and that it hasn't gone through um, their own rock bottom experiences. Cause those, those tend to be safe people because they know they have experience. They know what they needed in that moment. Yes. And so they're going to be able to know in some small way, perhaps what you might need in your moment. That's great. Um, I had a friend speak some truth into my life last week as I was talking to her about a broken area in my life. And she said her verse was in uh, her verse for the year was in Isaiah. And so I offered this as we start coming to a close, which is a bummer because I wish we could talk for the next four hours. <laughs> but I think people would probably hang up. So anyway, she said that these were her verses for the for the year. Isaiah 43, 6, I'm sorry, 18 which says, but forget all that. It is nothing compared to what I'm do, what I'm going to do. Meaning, stop looking back at all that mess and the the stuff that. Stop looking back at what caused everything to fall apart. Stop being be- defined by that. For I'm about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Don't you see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers. In a dry wasteland, the wild animals in the field will thank me, the jackals, the owls too, for giving them water in the desert. Yes, I will make rivers in the dry wasteland so my chosen people can be refreshed. If that isn't a word of hope, because yes, it's hard to go through these broken places, but there can be incredible joy and in fact, a ton of humor in the healing process. Because God's doing it. As we do come to a close, Mike, can you speak words of water that will refresh someone who is in that dry wasteland? Yeah. I think for me, my it, my message to anybody who's going through a difficult season and maybe experiencing some things that they had never, they, they didn't, didn't want to sign up for, right? In those, those moments, like, I wasn't expecting this, God. Um, it is to, for them to know, number one, that they're not alone, um, that they, they, that, that their, their story, um, is, is important that, that they're not sort of weird or an outcast or somehow being discarded because they're, they're going through a difficult time right now that they, they have people and they may not see those people right now, but there's two people on the, the video screen right now, uh, Colleen and Mike who deeply care about them. And so just grabbing hold on that, that sense that I'm not alone and that number two, that I am loved, um, that, that in my, in this state where we often feel so unlovable, it's in those places, like we feel so alone and feel so unworthy that, that there's just this love from God and love from our friends that is real and potent and, and trusting that that is real. And then thirdly, and this is one I always, I always take with, with, I say with caution, but I actually believe this to be true, that everything is going to be okay. It may, it may not be exactly what we thought it was going to be. We may not think, it may not be the life that we had anticipated or planned, but that we can trust that the inherent core theme of our life is goodness and hope. And um, no matter what the enemy might try to say, no matter what the critics and naysayers might say about our life and our future, that there is good to come. 
Okay, that's so true. And okay doesn't mean okay as we define it. That's mm-hmm. part of the surrendering process. It's yes. trusting, Lord, whatever it is that you deem okay, I'm, I accept. In fact, I'm going to trust that I will flourish in that because yes. you're a God of flourishing and of abundance. You promise us that. It's not something that I can kind of muster up. It's, it's promised in his word. And I'm going to bank on that more than anything else. Yes. Amen. How can they find you? Because I know that so many people want to be on your friendship bench. <laughs> I want to sit there. How can people find you? I know your podcast, which I love. Yes. Uh, a podcast on iTunes called Fun Therapy with Mike Foster. And uh, we just it's a, been a really fun project that has really resonated with a lot of people. Just sharing some of these stories, sharing some of the brokenness. And it's kind of like a, a counseling session that I do with a with an author, with an influencer, with a leader. Sometimes it's just pe- my, my friends who I just, they're going through a difficult season and we kind of process that. And it's been really powerful to hear the stories that have come out of that. Um, obviously the book, People a Second Chance on amazon.com. Uh, and then my website is mikefoster.tv. Uh, and that kind of can direct you to the workshop, to the ministry of People of a Second Chance. Um, the podcast, all of it's there at mikefoster.tv. That's great. And you and your wife have just put together a resource as well, which you were talking yes. about being married for 27 years, and you still think she's really hot, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> what is that project about? Yeah, so we have a new book that just literally came out just a few weeks ago called Five Dates, which is a, a his and her workbook for couples that takes them through a five-step process to help create more togetherness and connection in the relationship. And so whether you're dating, uh, engaged or married, it's a great resource uh, to, we always say, don't work on your problems, work on your togetherness. And so it's a really fun, creative way to build this sense of cohesion and connection that is so often, you know, gets lost in a relationship. So, you know, my wife and I have been together for 27 years. you know, it's easy to have seasons where you sort of drift apart and you drift, you know, because of the busyness of life or raising kids or whatever it might be. So this is a really uh, simple tool and a simple process to help you come back together through these five strategic conversations. And you can uh, learn more about that and get that resource. It's only available at fivedates.co. Um, it's not on Amazon. It's only at fivedates.co. Or you can go to my, my website. I have a link to it there, too, at mikefoster.tv. Well, Mike, thank you so very much for continuing to press through and to help people find their passion in the midst of their pain where God is at work. And thank you for this time. Um, If you have been watching this and have found hope or have found some kind of ray of light shed in that dark underground place, I want to invite you to visit Mike's uh, site Get the book, People of the Second Chance, who talks about throwing parties for people who have been incarcerated, which I totally loved, that section. Um, And also visit Reframing Ministry at insight.org because we care, and you can come as you are, sit on our friendship bench, and you will be loved and accepted. Mike, thank you again so very much. Let's do this again sometime, okay? I would love that, Colleen. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. You too. All right. Thank you for joining us today on the Reframing Ministries podcast. For more information and resources, visit insight.org slash special needs.